This is Mike Balaban. You're listening to Bammer and Me. Welcome to our podcast series. Today, my guest is Hudson Taylor, a longtime friend and fellow board member of a nonprofit called Athlete Ally, which he founded 10 years ago. We met about 10 years ago. I'd, I'd read about you and your work. Uh, you were a curiosity to a lot of people, a straight, white, handsome collegiate wrestler who had taken up the mantle of LGBTQ rights. Then I approached you as a, at a benefit where I believe you were being honored uh, for your allyship to the LGBT community. I told you how the work you'd been doing served as a role model for LGBTQ inclusiveness in sports. It reminded me of David Cope, the former NFL football player who came out publicly in 1975 and who became my mentor when I was going through the same process. I offered to help you, joined the board of Athlete Ally, and ended up serving as its founding chair for five years. As we celebrate its 10th anniversary, I'm about to roll off the board, this month in fact, and Athlete Ally is honoring five of us longtime board members at a dinner tonight. I thought this seemed like a good opportunity to interview you, share with our audience what you and we have accomplished, and publicly celebrate those milestones, as well as talk a bit about your personal history. Let's get right into it. Well, first of all, thanks for being here. <laughs> thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. When people first look at you, a handsome white cis male, they might see privilege. But your background contradicts that impression. Would you tell us about your upbringing, your family history, and how you became involved with wrestling as a sport at an early age? So... I grew up as a wrestler in a soccer town. I, uh, I started wrestling when I was five years old. It has been and continues to be probably one of the most important things in my life. But uh, I grew up in a soccer town. So where I think most athletes are given a lot of cultural capital because of their sport, uh, I was actually like, <laughs> it was not cool. It was not popular. It was, uh, you know, I would get made fun of because of that leotard thing you're wearing and you're grabbing each other. So there was lots of homophobic uh, jokes and innuendo from an early age in wrestling. That was, I guess, sort of plot point one. Plot point two, I grew up in a really religious family. So my great-great-great-grandfather uh, was a guy named James Hudson Taylor who brought Christianity to China. So I was raised in an evangelical Christian home. Um, my mom went to Lancaster Bible College. My sister went to a Christian college. Um, so faith was a really important aspect of my upbringing. I was not raised with the most inclusive faith based interpretation of the LGBTQ community. Um, so that was something I was always metaphorically wrestling with um, over the years. Uh, and then third, you know, at an early age, I became really passionate about theater and about the arts and music and dancing. And, um, you know, in, in fifth or sixth grade, I was in the Nutcracker and the ballet. Um, I was did you, did you yeah. get called names because of that? I did. I mean, yeah, but but there was sort of this trajectory, right? Where I think for for anybody, you have these social pressures that weigh on you. You have this way in which you see yourself and way, ways in which you want others to see you. And we're constantly managing we're, our impression management, right? We're trying to make sure people see us the way we want to be seen. But what started to happen is uh, in fifth grade, I moved to a new town and that town loved wrestling. And that town, being a good wrestler was cool. So I very quickly went from being on the bottom of a social hierarchy to now being on the top. And 
I had kind of come out of this place where I wasn't wrestling for anybody other than me. I wasn't doing it because it was cool, because it was liked. I was, I, I kind of found all these passions and interests that I pursued regardless of what anybody thought. So that was, uh, that was my sort of initial orientation in, in the sport of wrestling. I, um, I ended up going to the number one wrestling high school in the country. And so that was a place where wrestling was life. It was everything. And I was first one of the only wrestlers who ever did theater, <laughs> music, but I got... Was that, yeah. was wrestling an escape from the kind of overwhelming religiousness of your family or not? No, no. I mean, wrestling was, you, you know, I, I think at, at first you do something because that's a thing to do. And then you do something because you realize you have potential and you could be, you could be great at something. And, uh, I would say at an early, you know, sixth grade, I won nationals for the first time. And so sixth grade was sort of my inflection point where I was like, this is something I could be great at. And, you know, all the other sports I dabbled in, but I was not very good. <laughs> not that couldn't catch, couldn't throw a ball worth a damn, but wrestling, I could be great at. Um, but, sort of on top of that was always this religious history that was that I felt because everywhere I went, it was, how's your walk with Christ? You know, like I am the direct descendant of James Hudson Taylor who converted more people to Christianity than anyone other than Paul the Apostle. So there's these, these shoes to fill, which always really weighed on me and made me feel like I had to live a very Christian life. I had to go to Christian camps and be a member of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And so I did. Up until college, I was pretty active in the sort of Christian athlete community. So what freed you from that? <laughs> um, as I got better and better at wrestling, I, I got permission to be different, to, to not care. From yourself. From myself and from others, right? I think that you know, when somebody achieves the top of their industry, they're given license to bend the, bend or break the rules in ways that are uh, against the norm. You know, when I started at Blair, even though it was very counter to the norm of the culture. Blair Academy. Yeah. When I, sorry. <laughs> when I got to high school, Blair Academy, I was a three-time prep national champ in high school. I was one of the top prospects coming out of high school as a wrestler. So that athletic success gave me permission to be the lead in the in the musical and to be in the choir and to join the dance team or like you know like to lean into my uh artistic side of me in ways that people couldn't disparage or make fun of or kind of try to isolate or exclude me because i was so good at this thing that they and to also it. lean away from religion, which then begs the question, how did your family react to that? Yeah, yeah. So re the religious journey was, uh, honestly, a lot of that happened in high school because I had friends in theater who were, they weren't out at the time, but I had lots of teammates who were making homophobic jokes about those kids who were my friends, right? And I'd say at the time, I was not at a place socially where I was still, you know, I the pressures holding me back from speaking out and being a good ally were still acting upon me in a way that I wasn't like, no, don't, t don't talk about my friends that way, right? I still might have been quiet when I shouldn't have or laughed at a joke that I shouldn't have, but... Well, that's a good segue. Yeah. Because 
college was where you did begin to stand <laughs> up for ally, as an ally. So yeah. why don't you tell us about how you got into college and, and how that all evolved, particularly when you went into your first theater classes? Yeah, so I, um, I had an opportunity to go to a lot of different schools, and I ended up choosing University of Maryland because it was a place where I thought that I could excel both as an athlete and in theater. There were a lot of places that I didn't really feel so there, I feel like I was being sold something that wasn't super genuine. But Maryland, I was like, no, I can do theater. I can pursue my interest in the arts and excel at an elite level. So I started in Maryland as a theater major and a music minor in vocal performance. And it was different for me because in high school, all of my theater friends were closeted. In college, those same theater kids, but now in Maryland, were starting to come out. And so my relationship to the LGBTQ community, while it hadn't changed in fact, <laughs> it was changing in my percept, my like perception of it, because now I had people who were out and were in my life who I knew. Um, and I always tell this story, this, this kid, Matt, who sat next to me every day my freshman year in one of my theater classes. One day, five minutes before class started, he stood up, took a deep breath and said, class, I have an announcement, I'm gay. And the entire class like erupted in high fives and hugs and applause. And it was a really like beautiful celebration of this personal yet public step that Matt was taking to being truer to himself. And I was really struck by the support that he got, but then also the juxtaposition of that with the culture of my wrestling team. You know, it's like, wow, if, if that had happened on my team in our locker room, I don't know if we would have had that same reaction. And then to be with my teammates and hear that tired kind of daily homophobic language kind of started to put things in perspective. I think at that time, that's probably charitable to say, I don't know if it would have been that reaction, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah. Uh, so that was, you know, my first uh, awareness raising. But then what happened was, you know, I, I quickly found that I couldn't be a Division One athlete and have time to be in a lot of the shows. Uh, because it takes way too much time to do both. So at Maryland, you can actually create your own major. Um, so I actually changed my major to being uh, interactive performance art. So I, I created my own curriculum, picked handpicked my classes, and I really uh, was interested in theater as a political form of activism. How could we create an interactive experience that actually teaches somebody about a social justice issue? And so in pursuit of that major, I started to take a lot of philosophy classes, women's studies classes, queer theory, sociology, American studies. And that was, I'd say, the, the real work of unpacking my privilege, of understanding systems of oppression and the ways in which the LGBTQ community in particular have so many uh, things stacked against them in our in our law and in society in ways that you know I'd been aware of, but those classes and that education were really uh, important in my kind of ally education to get to a place where I felt comfortable being a more vocal activist. I would say the other things that were happening in college for me was Barack Obama was trying to become president. I was in you know University of Maryland, so out of season on the weekends, I would go and do canvassing for Obama. So I was, you know, really starting to believe that I had the ability to affect change. 
I saw something wrong in the world, that I could do something about it, that there was that hope and that optimism that really inspired me. Were you already recognizing that your platform as a successful and visible athlete leader would help? Or you just were thinking about it from Obama made you feel that you could be empowered? Yeah, I didn't I didn't connect those dots for a long time because you know wrestling is not the most popular sport. It's not like our home duels weren't sellout crowds. It was like, you know, 50 parents <laughs> coming together in a pretty quiet auditorium. So, I didn't really see any kind of power that I had with my athlete status. But, you know, Obama then wins you have this amazing moment of celebration, but then you also have Prop 8 in California. Which made LGTB marriage, same-sex marriage illegal. Right. Right. And so here you had this victory, which I was like immensely felt very proud of and, you know, did my part to bring about. But on the other hand, we have this rolling back of rights for an entire community, right? The the ability to have the freedom to, freedom to marry and how ridiculous and tragic that was really struck me. And then shortly after the It Gets Better project came to the national prominence, there was a real clear kind of national understanding of LGBTQ youth suicides. And that was something that I really wasn't aware of, how how hard it was, what young LGBTQ kids were dealing with. Um, and so I think, I think that further crystallized for me that there was a lot that the LGBTQ community, they lacked rights. There, there was an environment which was leading kids to feel as though they had no other option than to end their life, um, which was and is a tragedy. And again, kind of all that put together got me to a place where I was like, okay, I need to try to tackle and address this a little bit more head on. So tell us what happened in your locker room and where you were at that point when it happened. That really spurred you in the path that is kind of defined your last decade plus. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, you know, I was, it's funny because I'm I'm doing this podcast because of a sticker that changed my life. And um, it's funny how such a, a two-second decision can be so monumental in a person's life. Um, I actually think most amazing things happen in two seconds, right? Two seconds where somebody stands up and speaks out or two seconds where somebody is silent when they shouldn't be. Uh, that's where good or bad things happen in, the, in that little moment. But for me, it was a sticker. I was on campus and uh, somebody approached me in the quad that said, hey, do you support marriage equality? I was like, heck yeah, I do. And uh, you know, I signed the petition and the pledge and I got an HRC, a human rights campaign sticker, thanks to signing that. For those who aren't aware, uh, the human rights campaign is the largest LGBTQ nonprofit for LGBTQ rights. And their symbol of, or their logo is a yellow equal rights symbol on a dark blue background. Yeah. So I got that sticker and uh, I was a late bloomer when it came to driving a car. I didn't have a car. <laughs> uh, I didn't really have anything that I could put the sticker on. And so in some ways it was a fluke. Yeah, it was like, you know what, this would look really, I literally was just like, this would look really cool in my headgear. Um, you know, I'd seen so many athletes growing up with Philippians 4.13, right? Like uh, Bible verses taped on their on their headgear and uh, different things like that. And so I said, you know what, like, this really aligns with my values and what I believe in. And if other athletes can share uh, their faith through sport, why can't I share my political beliefs 
through sport. And so I put that HRC sticker on my headgear, really not thinking much of it. Just this would look cool. <laughs> this is uh, reflective of my beliefs in the world. And uh, it sort of, it was the first domino of a lot of different things that happened. First, uh, I definitely had a lot of really heated debates with my teammates over the wearing of that sticker. Um, we had a lot of deep debates about marriage and, uh, you know, definitely had teammates on opposite ends of that uh, of that fight. Maybe, maybe I've simplified it in my mind, but I... I have the impression that you more or less as captain of the team your senior year decided that, you know, I have a platform for influence and I'm going to tell my my teammates, I don't want any more of that homophobic or misogynistic language here in the locker room. It's just not, it's not acceptable. Is that, is that correct or not? It, it, I was already kind of laying down those lines um, in, in my daily interactions with the team because at this point I was a, you know, two-time All-American, captain of my team. I was a SAC rep, which for those who don't know, that's um, basically student government for athletes. So I was a SAC vice president. So I was a student leader. Um, so I kind of, all, in all these ways, was like, no, I have a responsibility to define what is and is not acceptable on my team. So I was definitely defining those lines when it came to homophobic, sexist, racist, ableist language, you know, I was doing that fair, pretty consistently. I think the sticker was more sort of an icing on that cake or even more... Uh, and publicly visible. And, and more publicly visible. And so that really was a, a big shift because I think, you know, for some of my teammates, they were really believed that I should keep that off the mats or keep that out of public discussion. But, but that's something that, I mean, you can go back to the Olympics and all the people that stand up there, right, including... 2014 Sochi, which Athlete Ally got involved in. So there's, yeah. a, there's a long history of athletes debating whether we have a right and should stand up for things we believe that are outside of athletics. I now have, I have a lot of thoughts about that, <laughs> which, which we will get into in great detail. But to, to, to speed up my, uh, the sort of the, gen, the origin story of Athlete Ally, one of my coaches at the time pulled me aside and said, Hudson, you know, I see you wearing this sticker, having these heated debates with your teammates. Would you be willing to do an interview about why you wear this sticker? I'm, I'm going to give yeah. him a shout out just because yeah. I, his name is Akil Patterson. He was a former tackle on the Maryland football team and a, I think a Greco-Roman wrestling yep. contender at the Olympics, right? Yep. And you didn't know he was a closeted gay man. Nope. Um, so Akil you know, pull me aside, connected me with, uh, without sports. I then, I did this interview about why I wore the sticker and kind of got to really lay out all the things that I thought and believed and was continuing to learn about, um, you know, my role, I think, in dismantling homophobia, transphobia in sport. And, you know, one of the things that I think has always been really important to me in this work is that progress doesn't occur unless we engage in difficult dialogue. So, I asked uh, the, the folks at Outsports to share my email address, as I know they routinely do. But, you know, I shared my email address with that article. I said, you know, please, let's reach out, be in touch, let's talk, right? And I just wasn't ready for the response. You know, again, I was still operating in this worldview where I was a wrestler and I'm not a revenue-generating sport. And, you know, I know I'm very good at my sport, but I just didn't really think that I had a national platform at all. Um, and then, you know, probably two days after that article posted, I opened up my email and I had over 2000 emails from 
you know, LGBTQ athletes, from parents of LGBTQ athletes, from so many different people in the community. Most, at, mostly closeted. Mo- mostly closeted. Mostly closeted. And it just knocked me, knocked me back. What did know? they say? You know, just story after story of how people were dealing with homophobia in very real ways, not able to tell their teammates, tell their coach, tell their family. Um, You know, and here I was like, I've spent my whole life loving sports, having a home and a family in sport and really taking it for granted. You know, I've never worried that my team was going to ostracize me or turn their back on me. And story after story after story was just athletes who felt as though if they were to share who they were with their team or with their loved ones, that they wouldn't be there for them. And so there was this sort of separation, uh, like in in email after email, like that athletes felt as though they had to hide in order to pursue the sport that they love, that they really had to like separate who they were from being from an athlete and an individual. And that's not even... Or that's discounting all those people that said to you, I was afraid to go out for a sport. I didn't think there was a place for me in the locker room, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and parents <laughs> who said, you know, I, I've never really thought about these issues. And I just read that, you know, I wrestled my whole life. And now I, I read this article about you and the sticker and the headgear. And now, you know, I'm, I realize how important it is for me to be more vocal, for me to support, support uh, my gay son, right? Like, Things like that, and and um, I mean that's an idea. Yeah, that's a, a an initial realization. Yeah, of an opportunity. Yeah, of a power that information has. That maybe you do have a platform. What happened next? So, one of those emails was from Fred Raffetto, who's another you know founding board member who was a lawyer in New Jersey. And he said, you know, hey, I read this article, and uh, if you ever need anything, please let me know. So at first, Athlete Ally, I would, wasn't actually thinking about it as an organization. I really was thinking, is there a way in which I could help uplift these stories that I was getting? Because I was getting thousands of emails from athletes who have experiences that people should know, right? You know, they, it, really, it really impacted me in a deep way. And as a white, heterosexual, cis a- athlete, I've gone through my whole life no, never hearing these stories, never knowing the, the pain that, that is being caused by homophobic jokes, right? I mean, we know it, but, but to hear it, to read it, to see it really, really touched me. And at first, my hope was to capture it and figure out a way to share it with the world. But I guess at first was like, okay, well, let's make a website. And what should that be called? Okay, I'm an athlete. I'm an ally. I'm an athlete ally. Um, so that was that became Athlete Ally. And then, you know, well, okay, you have a website. Well, what what is the website, right? What do you do on a website? I said, okay, well, I think for me, first thing that's really important is a pledge. For me, it's like there's a way in which people are conducting themselves that should change. And if we could convince more athletes and coaches and people within sport to commit themselves to changing that culture, changing their behavior, that would be a good start. So we had the website and we just threw up a pledge. And I pledged to do my part to make sport uh, a more welcoming space. And and then, you know, started to talk to Fred. And sort of this idea emerged of like, you know what, this should be more, this can be more. Um, 
So, you know, Fred reached out and said, can you help us get our 501c3 status? Which is a nonprofit uh, corporation. Yeah. And uh, at the time, Fred was not out at work. He was, you know, not out to the partners at his law firm. And, you know, we unknowingly put him in a really challenging situation because here I was asking him for pro bono legal services. <laughs> he needed to go to the partners of the firm to get approval for that. And why would he care about an organization like this? Right, right. Um, but it ended up being just a really beautiful story where he, you know, got that pro bono support. He came out. Um, he became a partner at the firm. He, you know... The, fir the firm supports us financially. Yep. Yeah. They threw our first fundraiser in, in Asbury Park. And uh, just a, a beautiful thing. Um, and so that's how Athlete Alley became a nonprofit. But we were still really far away from being an organization with a theory of change and a strategy. There was still a lot that needed to come together in order to make make the make meaning of the work right i think i think anybody who who i talk to then and talk to now about the work of athlete ally agrees that there's a problem right the fact that there aren't more out athletes the fact that participation rates and dropout rates are what they are for the lgbtq community in sport means that there's work to do but it's one thing to identify that it's another thing to say well okay how do we change it what are the baby steps that get us to uh, ending homophobia and transphobia in sport? Well, also considering that, you know, when you were doing this at that time, you had, after Fred helped you incorporate, you had the organization, you had the website, you had the pledge, and you had you and your girlfriend, right? Yeah. And you were, if I'm not mistaken, essentially, you got a lot of visibility. It's not often you see a handsome, white, all-American athlete out doing this kind of work. So you've got... You were on network TV, you were in magazines, you got your picture shown, and you were having quite an impact, but there's still not a lot of programming underneath that. Right. But you were being paid to go to schools, athletic departments, corporate affinity groups, LGTB groups, et cetera, to kind of deliver the message that allyship is important. Is that yeah. fair? Yeah, I would say the first sort of philosophy of Athlete Ally was that there's never been a successful social justice movement for minority group without the support of the majority. And if we're going to end homophobia and transphobia in sport, we need more allies to to roll up their sleeves and, and commit to changing things. Um, and so the first three, four years of Athlete Ally, I was a road warrior. <laughs> I was going to about 50 colleges a year, um, working with athletes and coaches and administrators on how can we be better allies? You know, and and I, I wasn't ever and still don't presume to have all the answers, but I know my own personal, I was really just telling my own journey, uh, my own story, saying, look, we can do better. Sport should be a place where everyone belongs, where everybody can maximize their potential. And the fact that that's not true for the LGBTQ community is a choice. And we can change that. Um, and so I really was just pushing hard to hammer that message home anywhere and everywhere I could. You were having amazing impact, but you were kind of up against the wall of how you could scale that. Yeah, because, you know, you, you go to, I mean. How, how many schools can you visit? How, how many schools can you visit? How do you actually measure the efficacy of those visits? A couple things started to happen for us at Athlete Ally. First, uh, there was a couple handful of professional athletes who agreed to lend their name, right? So Athlete Ally started before marriage equality was, was law. So straight athletes supporting marriage was still 
um, not the not the norm. You know, you could count on two hands the number of of allies in sport speaking out for marriage equality. And so the first couple of years was how does athlete ally get to know those athletes, work with them, help them, and so. Brendan Nibadejo, Chris Cluey, Scott Vegeta, Sean Avery um, were kind of this. And so Brendan was an all-star all linebacker for the Baltimore Ravens Super Bowl winning team. Sean Avery was a, a starting forward or defenseman, I can't remember, uh, for the New York Rangers hockey team. And those two actually ended up serving on our board with us. Yeah. And it was, you know, it was like, here I was as a wrestler. I have some platform, but. I don't have a fraction of the platform that a professional athlete has. What we found is that if we got really strategic about what Brendan was saying or what Sean was saying, or if Sean and Brendan were to ask five of their friends to get involved, we could very quickly start to amass a community of athletes who would listen to what those athletes had to say. And so very early on, athlete allies started to kind of, quote unquote, like punch above our weight because of our affiliation and the trust we were building with professional athletes. Sort of the secret sauce of Athlete Ally has always been our relationship with educating and activating professional athletes. Well, if I'm not mistaken, it's been six or seven years that you've been training every incoming NBA rookie on LGBT issues. Yeah, so for seven years in a row, uh, myself and Jason Collins, we would uh, work with with all the all the rookies in the NBA, and so you know, look, progress moves at the speed of trust, and you can only build that trust through continued education, conversation, working together. But I think you know, as more and more athletes started to work with us, the trust grew, right? And so it became easier to get more ambassadors, and so now we have over 400 Olympic, Paralympic, professional athletes who are ambassadors. We work with those athletes to write amicus briefs to the Supreme Court, to march on Washington, to write op-eds, to do public speaking. To urge the NCA to stand up for trans athletes' rights, et cetera. I mean, you name it. Uh, our athletes are on the front lines of trying to fight to make sport everything we know it can, it should be. But but the the beginnings all started in those early days where we realized that if athletes speak in one voice, there is nothing they can't accomplish. Uh, and so how we can better create that unity of athlete voice, uh, the more impactful we'll be. Is it fair to say that the next step up was when we started preparing for the Sochi Winter Olympics? Do you want to talk about that? Absolutely. So, okay, here's a little, little athlete ally chugging along. You know, we're really educating, uh, doing having LGBTQ inclusion conversations all over the country. We're growing our ambassadors, but we then are met with this moment where you have the winter, the Sochi Winter Olympics happening in Russia, and in the lead up to the to those games, Russia passed an anti-gay propaganda law, which made it punishable by fines or arrests if you supported quote non-traditional sexual relations. Uh, basically in front of minors. So it, it was written in a way that really made any same-sex physical intimacy potential violation of this propaganda. Or discussion role. or support of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, reflying a rainbow flag, for instance, right? Any Anything that could be construed as propaganda, right? Um, so that, we, we have that uh, over here. <laughs> and then 
On the other hand, we have IOC's Rule 50. Rule 50 prevented athletes from making any political statements, gestures, or demonstrations in any Olympic venues. So the stage was set whereby if a, if a gay athlete uh, won, you know, won an Olympic medal and they kissed their partner in celebration, they could be both in violation of Rule 50 because that can now be construed as a political demonstration, and they could be subject to fines or arrest. In Russia. In Russia, right? So what was at stake was actually really major. And I think it, um, it just was a, a perfect moment where we could ask the question in really concrete terms, the relationship between the principles of a sport and its practice. How do we help make sure those two things align? And in looking over the Olympic Charter and the principles of Olympism, you know, going through line by line by line, all of a sudden we, I land, you know, literally was trying to think about how do we overcome Rule 50? How do we overcome this anti-gay propaganda role? Because we want to do a campaign, we want to make visibility and push, but I don't want athletes to get stripped of their medals. I don't want athletes to get fined or arrested. So what do we do? So going through the principles of Olympism, there I read, the principle six of the Olympic Charter. Discrimination of any kind is incompatible with belonging to the Olympic movement. Wow, that feels like everything that I would ever want an athlete to say about this anti-gay propaganda law. Except it did not explicitly protect on LGBTQ expression, right? So step one, Athlete Ally, let's write a letter to the IOC, International Olympic Committee, uh, getting them to clarify that sexual orientation is protected under principle six of the Olympic Charter. We get our ambassadors to co-sign that letter. Three days later, we get a response. Yes, sexual orientation is included in principle six of the Charter. Or at least it's implied that it's... And uh, later they would end up encoding it specifically. Right. They would rewrite to actually explicitly have, have it mentioned. So, okay, we got that acknowledgement. That meant that we now have the foundation for a really strategic conversation because we could have athletes competing at the Winter Games say, I support principle six of the charter and doing so would not be in violation of rule 50 because the IOC can't say that uh, it's political for an athlete to sp support their own charter. And they can't say it's in violation of the propaganda law, right? Because they, in theory, should be abiding by principle six of the charter as hosts. Um, and that, that, campaign snowballed into, you know, we had over 200 Olympic and Paralympic athletes vocally, visibly a part of the Principle 6 campaign. Um, we had Rihanna tweeting to 40 million followers. <laughs> we had Alexander Wang designing beanies, cashmere beanies that were being sold with the proceeds going, as well as American Apparel designing clothing to, for Principle 6. So it was a big deal. Yeah. The Australian bobsled team put Principle 6 on the front of their bobsled. <laughs> um, I went to Sochi with Rob Smith one of our other board members to continue to like beat that drum. All Out was also a really important partner. I should mention that. Like they mobilized millions of people to sign petitions in support of principle six of the charter, which I think our athletes speaking out plus All Out's strength in numbers uh, really put pressure on the IOC. All Out is kind of a change.org for LGBTQ rights. Petitioners send, sending in, uh, you know, 
urging people to act certain ways with millions of people on the ground in various countries around the world, right? Yep, exactly. As you mentioned, they changed the language of Principle 6 to explicitly include sexual orientation. They built it into the bidding process for all future games. So now any country wishing to host the Winter or Summer Olympics must abide by Principle 6. Part of the UN uh, Olympic truce, the resolution that they do leading up to the, the Olympics every year, uh, they baked in Principle 6 into the, the Olympic truce. Um, in fact, Kazakhstan was one of two countries bidding for the 2022 Winter Games. And at the time, they had an anti-gay propaganda law working its way through their legislator. And we, again, you know, organized the athletes, wrote to the, the IOC saying, hey, just to be clear, <laughs> if they want to host the Winter Games, they must abide by Principle 6. Is that correct? You know? Three days later, we get a, a response. Yes, all countries must abide by Principle 6 of the Pu Charter. Publicly, you know, publicized. I mean, it was, yeah. it was in the news. And the result was the Constitutional Court of Kazakhstan overturned the anti-gay propaganda. They, they, they didn't pass it. It never, it never became law. They, they dropped the bill from consideration. So that for us was this aha moment of, wow, here we are. We don't have an office. <laughs> like, we don't really have a, we don't, you know, the staff was the board and, uh, this really kind of scrappy upstart of an organization affecting the policies of the International Olympic Committee, changing the practices of the ways in who hosts the Olympics forevermore. And that that was a moment that was like, wow, we can we can have big wins if we are able to get the athletes to use their power, use their platform to speak out. And so since then, we've tried to, to replicate that, that same model again and again and again, sometimes. And so we've had some other major wins because of that. Um, we helped overturn the hijab ban in international basketball, thanks to athletes signing on and speaking out. Uh, we helped increase the number of women in FIFA governance. Um, so Again, this is us being allies because that's not really part of our core work. But we believe in really strongly in helping all discriminated against, uh, you know, populations uh, be given the right to to participate in athletics equally. I, I think it's both in. I think I think it's both understanding that no one community can achieve full liberation if everyone doesn't. Right. That that all of these struggles are interconnected and and cannot be separated from one another. And then two. If we're going to be successful in ending homophobia and transphobia in sport, we need to build a bigger tent. And so by showing up in solidarity with these other athletes and these other fights, we build that bigger tent because the next campaign, those athletes are now signing on to support trans athletes or to support uh, the moving of championships events out of North Carolina over anti-LGBTQ laws. Well, with regard to that, just so our listeners know, uh, there was an anti-trans bathroom bill in the state of North Carolina around 2015 or so, if I recall. And we uh, worked really hard and ultimately, and it wasn't easy, it was the first time I believe major sports leagues and or regulators ever acted in this way. We got both the NBA and the NCAA, the collegiate administrators and the basketball or regulators of the pro basketball leagues to pull their championship events out of North Carolina until that bill was modified. It was a, you know, it was kind of crazy how it happened, but uh, that was a pretty big win. It was huge. It was the first time in history that a sporting event has actually been moved over anti-LGBTQ laws. It wasn't 
perfect. There were still some really big problems with it, but it was at a minimum, it's proof of concept that these things that we think are insurmountable are actually very malleable, very changeable if athletes join together and fight for it. You know, you might want to just describe briefly the kind of three silos we operate in. Sure. So there's now, technically, there's now four pillars to our work. Uh, The first being LGBTQ education. So as an organization, we are trying to make, or here's the problem statement, the people with the most power and influence are the least educated. So long path for us, we want to live in a world in which every single coach in the country is educated on LGBTQ respect and inclusion Coaches are like mentors. They're really important in a young person's life, but they're oftentimes not equipped to make sport a welcoming space for our most marginalized youth. So we need a better baseline for coach education. So we are really working hard to do that. The second pillar of our work is about sports policy reform. So the problem statement is that the policies of sport don't reflect or protect the people who are trying to access sport. Uh, And we see this from non-discrimination policies, Uh, fan codes of conduct, uh, trans inclusion guidelines, sexual assault and harassment policies. You know, we talked about bidding. You know, we're still seeing mega sporting events going to countries that are violating human rights across the board. So the relationship between the business of sport and the protecting and respecting and upholding the human rights of its constituents is an area where we are really trying to lead and we're trying to fight for change there. So, You know, whenever we see a sport policy that we feel is falling short of those ideals, we're going to try to organize athletes to do something about it. I would say um, the more evergreen effort for us is something called the Athletic Equality Index, where we rank and report on the LGBTQ policies and practices of every NCAA Division I college in the country. So that's 353 schools, your most like decorated. competitive NCAA institutions, we now rank on these criteria, which... Using the best practices of the actual NCAA regulators themselves. So we're not (laughs) making that up ourselves, right? A big first step before we even launched the AEI was working with the NCAA to define best practice. You know, what is the gold standard, knowing that we then wanted to use (laughs) that NCAA resource as a way to, to rank and report where people stood. But that's been massively successful. I mean, we've seen the number of trans inclusion policies go up by like 300%. So it's, it's, so pillar one on the education front, if coaches are better educated, right, we're going to have higher participation rates for LGBTQ youth and better retention rates. So kids aren't going to be dropping out of sports. From there, we have that bridge between high school and college. Only uh, 8% of high school athletes go on to, to play sports collegiately. For those listening, LGBTQ athletes drop out of sport at twice the rate of their heterosexual cis counterparts. So we need to basically bridge that gap so that kids aren't dropping out of sports. We think coach education is going to get us a, a good way there. But, you know, I've talked to so many athletes who they come out freshman year of college and then they quit. And they, or they transfer schools. Because, because they don't feel comfortable. They, yeah, it's not worth it. Um, I'm not going to show up every day to a place that doesn't support and affirm me. I, I forget it. <laughs> so the AEI is a great tool for that because now we're able to show a young high school athlete, hey, here are the institutions that are really showing up and are putting their actions where they're 
uh, you know, values are, right? In ways that that you can rely upon. So I hope that in the future, LGBTQ athletes at the high school level will look to the AEI as evidence for where they should and shouldn't go athletically. And more than that, millennial and Gen Z youth, even those that are not LGBTQ, are allies and have LGBTQ friends. And if they find that there's a school that's got a zero score that's recruiting them, and there's another school with a hundred score that's recruiting, they may be more inclined to go to the one with a higher score because they treat their friends better. Absolutely. Uh, and I'll put an asterisk on this that I think long-term for us, the AEI both need to expand to D1, uh, D2, and D3 schools. D- division two and Division right? three. Right, so those are the maybe less, quote-unquote, competitive layers of of the NCAA structure. But I think we also need to figure out how do we incorporate other metrics. If a school is showing up for their LGBTQ athletes, but is really falling short in Title IX compliance or, you know, supporting uh, their female athletes or their athletes of color, um, then that that measurement is going to be flawed, right? So, we have to figure out how does the AEI speak to other indicators of climate and inclusion and commitment, but I think we have a really powerful start. And we should also give a shout out to Adidas. Yeah, Adidas has been an incredible partner for us and has really made made it possible for us to scale our work and specifically scale the AEI. Uh, as you can imagine, ranking all of these schools and then following up and being in touch with each school, working with them to change policy, change practice, takes a lot of time and investment. And Adidas has helped uh, fund our AEI fellows. So we get, um, we're able to hire 25 PhD researchers from across the country to help us define the score and do the follow-up necessary to make the AEI work. Um, did, did you finish the four? I did not. I, <laughs> number three is athlete activism. So basically the problem statement is that athletes are silenced. They are discouraged from using their platform. And, you know, I believe that Colin Kaepernick not being on a team because he took a knee is the same thinking that... Took a knee at the, uh, when the national anthem is being sung. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> you know, that culture that punishes an athlete for speaking out also punishes or creates the perception of risk for an athlete coming out, right? And so unless and until there's a culture where athletes can be their authentic selves, where they're encouraged to stand up and speak out for what they believe in, there's still going to be barriers for LGBTQ athletes at the highest level of our sport. So we really try to change that through our ambassador program, which I mentioned, you know, over 400 Olympic, Paralympic professional athletes, and through our athlete ally chapters. So we have now 45 chapters on college campuses. Those are groups run by current college athletes who are fighting to change policy and drive education and um, really, again, leading the way in making their campus a welcoming space. Um, And then the fourth pillar is research. So you know, I can uh, tell you why I think this work is so important until I'm blue in the face, but there are some folks who really want to see the data to care, <laughs> unfortunately. I would think that people would just want to be good people and <laughs> like, make, hate, make, hate, hate make is positive, bad. <laughs> make positive change. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. But but look, I mean, the research that's done on the experiences of LGBTQ athlete is really lacking. We do not have accurate data to talk about, well, what is the what are the LGBTQ demographics within sport at the collegiate level, at the high school level? Um, there have been some studies done, but it's 
few and far between. So we're really doubling down, investing in research so that we can make it clear, A, here's your population that you are failing to serve. And B, if you invest in inclusive policies and practices, here's how your climate and culture is going to change. And we well, want well, to be able it, to... It illuminates the need. Without that data, you can't prove that, in fact, the need is real. Absolutely. You know, increasingly, the right wing is embracing opposition to transgender rights and especially to the rights of trans athletes to be able to participate equally in competitive sports. Yeah. It's a complicated topic, uh, but can you explain as well as you can in this short space why Athlete Ally embraces trans athlete access to sports and what we're doing to help bring it about? Absolutely. So I'm going to begin with a couple basic premises, right? So basic premise one is that I think participation in sport is a good thing, right? It, it gives its participants unparalleled physical, social, and emotional growth. It teaches people how to overcome adversity and how to work as a team and gives you self-confidence and I think helps establish uh, healthy habits that hopefully go with a person through the rest of their life. If we can agree to that, <laughs> then premise two is that that culture and environment should be accessible for our most marginalized young people, right? The people who are the most at risk to experience harm should be able to find a home in sport. And our trans youth is that community. They have the, they could benefit the most from sport and yet they're given the least access. Our LGBTQ youth and our trans youth in particular, they experience much higher rates of obesity, drug and alcohol use, suicide ideation, experiences of bullying and harassment. And the right has chosen to erase and, and eliminate the ability of trans youth to be their authentic self in a space that could save their life. And that is heartbreaking because I believe that participation in sport is a right. I think that it's important that we fight for that right for our most marginalized young people. Do we have, um, I mean, I know we have a lot of resources on the website, but do we have something that someone who's uninformed about this issue can turn to and educate yeah. themselves? Do you want to kind of help them understand? How yeah, we absolutely, we have lots of those resources at athleteally.org. Please dig in. Um, you know, I, I think when it comes to the then like the policy of trans athlete participation, there's a couple different layers to this conversation. So first, what the right is doing is they're trying to shift the spectrum of what constitutes elite elite sports. So going back to 2011, there have been pathways for trans athletes to participate consistent with their gender identity, both within the NCAA and within the Olympic movement. Okay, those policies require a medical intervention in order for an athlete to compete according to the gender with which they identify. There have been no issues with, with those policies. Um, I mean, asterisk, there are issues because the basis for which those policies are based is actually really problematic. But, but um, the fear that trans athletes are going to hurt the integrity of sport is completely unfounded, right? At the at really every level of sport. What's happening now is a shifting of what constitutes elite sport. There are people who say a kid as young as 12 years old should be required to undergo medical intervention if they want to compete consistent with their gender identity. Now, this is really 
harmful and problematic for a number of reasons. Uh, first, you're taking away the bodily autonomy of the individual. Uh, it creates gender policing. So if you suspect somebody is trans, you're now putting coaches and officials into a place where they have to police the gender of, of athletes in a way that's really problematic. Um we're also placing financial constraints on trans youth because a lot of transition-related care isn't covered by health insurance. So if you don't come from a place of family who can afford it, you're now putting a, a financial burden on participation. So we're just kind of compounding all the ways in which we're isolating and excluding and endangering our, our most marginalized young people. When it comes to the conversation of actual, well, what about sort of testosterone and its impact on competitive excellence and performance? The truth is, is that there has not been enough data to prove the correlation between testosterone and competitiveness, okay? Every human body makes testosterone, right? We, we all make tea at different levels, but we also have androgen sensitivity that differs. So that's why we have some people who are really muscular, but have no body hair, who have lots of body hair, but no muscles, right? Just because my body makes a lot of tea doesn't necessarily mean that my body is going to, uh, quote unquote, benefit <laughs> uh, because of that tea In production. In terms of athletic performance. Exactly, right? So it's not a one-to-one. -one. So the policies that, that exist today, they are two-dimensional, right? They don't actually reflect the diversity of the human body. They are saying, okay, we're putting a number on the, on the dartboard of you must have your testosterone level at or below this amount, right? Without ever taking into consideration whether or not there's androgen sensitivity, the forget the uniqueness of a sport, right? What makes a ultra marathoner great at their sport is different than what makes a Olympic powerlifter great at their sport, right? It's different muscles. It's different types of uh, strength that make an athlete exceptional. So basically... <laughs> well, the problem yeah. is that this becomes rife for people who want to demonize other to attack it. It's really not about fairness, equity, inclusion, relative performance. I mean, the fact of the matter is very rare that you have trans athletes winning championships, which is the, the threat that is held out by the right wing for why we shouldn't allow them to. So in any event, yeah, it, go ahead. But I would also say like, we need to also get to a place where trans athletes can win championships, where they can be exceptional at their sport, and that we're not going to say that that's unfair and that's cheating, right? The only way in which that happens, if, if more research is actually done on the relationship between T, testosterone production, androgen sensitivity, and competitive excellence in a whole host of different sports at different levels. So that's why when you look at the new IOC framework on trans uh, inclusion, it really puts a, a flag in the ground that says, inclusion is our North Star, uh, evidence-based policy is our North Star. Uh, it has to be peer-reviewed research. Uh, you know, we can't just be plucking arbitrary data out of the sky to decide who does and doesn't get to access sport. It has to be done in a really thoughtful way because people's lives depend on it. Their livelihoods depend on it. Um, their human rights depend on it. I knew I opened up a, a, a ball of a can of worms, as, as they say, but I wanted to at least let people know we are dealing with this. And if anybody wants more information, we have it. 
you know, you're a straight man who's dedicated his life, at least a decade and a half so far, to LGBT rights. And your wife, Leah, is a senior leader at Arcus, the largest LGBTQ foundation, who's dedicated her life to LGBTQ For people who are skeptical or are questioning, what is it about this area that has inspired you with passion? I mean, for me, I, I, I feel passionately that I am impacted by homophobia and transphobia. We all are. Homophobia is a weapon of sexism, right? Like what LGBTQ people are dealing with impacts everybody because it's it's policing masculinity. It's it's what I mean, you know, the expectations that are placed on on men are connected to to homophobia, right? Like men dying younger because of the ways in which we live our lives, not being able to ask for help, our mental health. Um, to express feelings, to, to express show weakness. Feelings, show weakness. Yeah. All of the, the ortho, orthodox masculinity hurts men, hurts all men. Right. And I believe that if we achieve full and complete liberation for the LGBTQ community, everyone will benefit, right? I will be able to be my whole self, right? As a as progressive and like, you know, inclusive as I feel I am, like I still have shackles <laughs> on how I live my life, right? I, I still feel as though I have to uh, express my gender in a particular way. I have to hold myself in a particular way in order to be seen as legitimate in the eyes of a sports person, right? So, there are these ways in which we are all put into these narrow boxes of expression of identity that are that cause real harm. And so, um, I don't know. For me, I, I just I also think that uh, if I was alive during the civil rights movement, I would have liked to think that I would have fought and marched uh, and done my part. And I really truly feel that when we look back at this moment today, 50 years from now, we're going to be asking ourselves that question about like, what did you fight? Did you stand? Did you, did you do your part? Um, For something beyond just your own immediate benefit. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, switching gears quickly, you know, in addition to Athlete Ally, uh, you're constantly expanding your passions and how you use your limited free time. <laughs> so, for example, since you can no longer wrestle, you've become a jujitsu specialist, right? <laughs> uh, but in fitting with your performing arts uh, interests, and I don't know, maybe you can briefly discuss this, going back a long time, you've kind of become a top-notch magician. <laughs> what is it about magic that has motivated and inspired you? And when did it start? And where are you with that now? So, I was very good at wrestling, not because I was the most athletic or the strongest, but because I'm a student of the sport. And I love studying film and technique. I still do. I still watch endless hours of footage whenever I can, because I believe that with persistence and practice, and if you do it really strategically, you can become great at anything. If you just have the, t like, you know, there's 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 maybe a ceiling for all of us based off of what we're naturally born with but but i feel like we can all achieve pretty incredible heights of anything we pursue if we have the discipline to pursue it and so for me in my own kind of like uh creative and aesthetic expression there are definitely these areas where i've gravitated towards 
certainly jujitsu is sort of a replacement for wrestling. It's it's such a close cousin, but it's different. You know, I'm I am a student. I am learning. Uh, I just got my brown belt, but I still have um, you know, so much to to learn and and become uh familiar with in that sport. And that that I'm not to go on our rant here, but we live in a society that teaches people to protect their egos. You learn to specialize in a field. And then once you specialize in that field, you are encouraged not to take risks outside of it. Don't, don't look stupid. Don't, you know, don't do anything that might uh, question your competency in a given field. And I am a big believer in leaning into those areas where I am a beginner. I love being a beginner at things because that's where I feel like my brain grows the most, where I can be the most expressive. And so I run towards these sort of creative outlets that I feel like are like technical, like I can I can actually track my progress towards a goal. So magic, you know, yes, I love the creativeness of it because really magic is only limited by your imagination. You can create whatever effect you want, um, whatever you dream up you then can work backwards to figure out how to make that effect possible. But the the toolbox that you use is, is techniques. It's knowledge-based. So I that was always with me throughout my wrestling career uh, on all the bus rides and road trips. I would always have a deck of cards. Uh, it was also one of the ways in which I would sort of uh, manage my stress of competition because I could just have a deck and I wouldn't be caught into the emotional current of competition. I could kind of remove myself and just almost like meditate with magic. Um, and there's also a lot of downtime in wrestling where you were able to do it. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> and also just from an athlete ally standpoint, I know that when you've been training the NBA rookies, you can introduce them to magic and that's, that's a way of getting them to walk into your wheelhouse. Yeah, I mean, a lot of uh, the magic community, I mean, there's a lot of introverts that use magic as a as a tool for social interaction. I mean, um, magic is so beautiful because you don't need to speak a common language in order to connect somebody through magic. Um, so it's a beautiful gift to to interact, to build rapport, to have fun. Uh, if somebody has defenses, it definitely helps break those down. But I'm a I'm a serial hobbyist, so I do pumpkin carving, sandcastle building. Uh, Egg, egg painting, Paisanki egg dyeing. Like basically, if there's a tactical skill with my hands that's technique based that I can and, feel progress towards. And um, as a side, you <laughs> performed it. Is it the House of Magic in LA? What's oh, it? the Magic Castle. Magic Castle. And you have. <laughs> sort of by accident, you, though. But you've, <laughs> invented, you've invented a couple of tricks of your own. You've got some CDs that we're selling with. I mean, so you, this is not just a little hobby. It's uh, definitely an obsession. And I'm definitely. Am, I'm always trying to create, I don't know, I, just, I don't know, I think that uh, expression is a beautiful thing, and so I'm always trying to... Well, if anyone ends uh, up meeting Hudson out and about, ask him to show you a magic trick, I will. you'll be blown away. I will have a deck of cards on me, I guarantee it. <laughs> you and Leah, and now your two daughters, uh, recently moved away from the immediate New York area, kind of in, uh, facilitated by the COVID, you know, remote working phenomena. Yeah. And tell us where you ended up and how. Yeah, we uh, we ended up moving to New Hope, Pennsylvania, which uh, was an early uh, settlement community. It was actually uh, a part of the initial uh, William Penn land grant. So 
uh, King, King of England gave William Penn <laughs> lots of land. And, uh, and then he gave that land to early Quakers. So it was really a, a tool to incentivize Quakers who at the time were religious radicals in, in, in England to, to come to the new world. Right. And so my, my mom's family actually, uh, are, were all early Quakers and, it turns out that New, and New Hope is where a lot of them lived. And so when we were, uh, you know, we COVID came and it really was this opportunity to say, you know what, I, I think the world is going to be different when this pandemic is over. I think we'll be able to find a way to be more vir- virtual, to have to commute less. Um, I think technology allows it. At some point, the environment will require it. So I'm betting on a more virtual future. So we started to look, and New Hope was one of those places, you know, 75 miles outside of New York City, 40 miles outside of Philly, and um, a lot of these beautiful old historic homes. And uh, we got, it was really serendipitous. A house came up on the market that was actually built by my ancestors. And so, you know, we were able to uh, write to the owners and show them old family photos and make the case uh, that we really wanted to to bring this back home. And um, we were so grateful that they accepted our offer that they, we have no business. <laughs> yeah, this market has been absolutely wild, but um, yeah, just so, so grateful and uh, really happy to call New Hope home, uh, happy to call Bucks County home, which if you're into politics is also like, you know, it's a it's a swing. It's plus one Republican. Pennsylvania is a really important political state. So I'm also really excited to just be getting more connected in a community where my vote and my volunteerism hopefully will will make a difference in in other ways. So finally, with, with such an eventful first decade as an activist uh, in your rearview mirror, what goals do you have for the next ten years? <sighs> Big questions. You know, Athlete Allies uh, at the tip of this iceberg. I think there's so much potential, so much more that we could we can accomplish. Kevin Jennings always says this phrase like, "This is not the beginning of the end. This is the end of the beginning." Kevin is the current CEO of Lambda Legal, by the way. Yeah, yeah and uh, that always has resonated with me. I feel like even though we're ten years in, I still feel like there's the 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 potential in front of us is limitless. So I think for Athlete Ally, you know, I, I feel very confident in our theory of change and like the pillars that we're investing in are right. There's probably ultimately going to be a fifth pillar, which nobody knows about, but among friends, uh, you know, I, I, I'm starting to believe increasingly that uh, if we're completely successful in our work within sport, there's still going to be work to do kind of sport adjacent in the communication space. So right now we are in an asymmetrical communication landscape where the right has is able to amplify anti-LGBTQ messages globally at the drop of a hat. And so I think we also need to think about what do what is the role of sports journalists in telling positive stories of LGBTQ athletes, of allies, um, making social justice in sport the norm. So um, communication. So, yeah. On our existing work and, the, and those things, I think we're going to figure out how to uh, go deep in some specific geographic regions. So when we think about education, sport policy change, and athlete activism, I want to sort of make a little ecosystem of work that we can apply to any geographic region. And with that will come, you know, 
different communities will be at different places in their inclusion journey. So we're going to need to research and audit, like well, and and metrics, right? What is the, what is the current climate? What are the needs that need changing? But then based on that, we should be able to say, okay, we know that through a series of trainings, we can change climate in the following ways. We know that if we change policy and practice, we can change climate in the following ways. If we organize athletes, we can get these things changed and to happen. That blueprint is then replicable globally. Step one is we need to have this sort of box of impact that we can apply in any geographic area. And then from there, we can start to look at so many other corners of this country where sport is everything, where it is the thing that a country loves and follows and listens to and strives for. And yet there's no LGBTQ conversation, right? Those 76 plus countries where you could be fined, arrested, or put to death for being LGBTQ, those countries love sport, right? Their athletes have a platform. So I think the future for Athlete Ally is just figuring out how we can authentically and thoughtfully show up in those spaces in ways that are scalable. And, uh, and hopefully when we have this conversation 10 years from now, you know, sport will look very different. I always think about what does that athlete look like 10 years from now? What is their experience like in the locker room? What's their conversation look like with a coach or with their fan base or with their teammates? And how open are they? How out are they? Yeah. Um, So I like to think that that athlete 10 years from now can have that same conversation with a coach, with a player, with their family, regardless of where they live in the world, right? Regardless of what sport they play. And I, I think that we have a good blueprint. Obviously, we need a lot more investment, grow the team, grow the programming. But but I I really believe that if we change sport, we change the world. I think that it it sport is one of the greatest socialization mechanisms in the world. I think sport, unlike any other institution, teaches boys how to become men, girls how to become women in ways that unfortunately are really toxic. But if we could get that right and get sport to be teaching a more compassionate form of masculinity, uh, a more, you know, in the future, if the assumption, oh, you're a jock, you must be an activist, <laughs> right? If, if that could be the assumption, then I think we could just accomplish some radical things. And I'm excited and honored to be able to be building it. Um, grateful for all of your support and service and making Athlete Ally what it is today. And yeah, excited for the next well, time. I, I didn't mention, uh, because I wanted this, the folks to be on you, uh, I got involved early and approached you and said, I, you have these great goals and you've done a lot, but I think there's so much more that can be done that we were at a tipping point in society at the time. And I, along with Kevin, had joined his board at Glisten in the 90s and spent nine years helping them build it. And I thought we could do the same thing with Athlete Allies. So I, I asked Hudson if he wanted some help. And he said, sure. I joined the board. And in our first few months, we're just figuring out what's a budget look like, <laughs> you know, and h- how do we set up programming and how are we going to afford staff? And then, well, wait a second, we need officers. And, and who wants to be chairman? And nobody raised their hand. So I said, okay. And I did it for five years. And tonight is the is a farewell. At the end of this month, I roll off. Uh, I have to tell you, I'll, I'll be choked up later, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, but it's been a, a wonderful experience. And I'll continue in, in my role as the chairman of a new emeritus board for the old farts. Uh, <laughs> but I am so impressed. I want to thank you for sharing your story with our listeners. I want to thank you for being the incredible activist for the LGBT community that you've become. 
I want to thank you for providing me with purpose and meaning as I began to leave my business career 10 years ago. And I want to thank you for being my friend. Thank you so much, Mike. Appreciate you. Love you.